News, politics, and special guests with a Texas twist. That's the goal of the Luke Messias Show. Our nation and state are at a crossroads, and if you're not informed, you're not equipped to make the change our community needs. Join the conversation and join the cause for liberty today. Well, welcome to episode 104, which is, I guess, 52 weeks in a year. This is the two-year anniversary of the Luke Messias Show, and I am having my former attorney, now FEC commissioner, uh, conservative warrior, Trey Trainer on to talk to us a little bit about redistricting and uh, swamps and all sorts of things. Trey, thank you for uh, thank you so much for taking a little bit of time out of your uh, swampy activities up there in Washington <laughs> to to talk to me today. Well, thanks for having me, Luke, and congratulations on so many shows. Yeah. So, Trey, uh, some people don't know your background, so let's just give that to them real quick. Uh, some of our listeners, I know you. You. Uh, I tell people you kept me out of jail for a couple of years. Um, and so that was nice. I wasn't conducting any activity that would put me in jail. I should like clarify that just in case anybody's wondering. But uh, you provided some great guidance and, and legal counsel to me and many other conservatives here in Texas uh, were involved with President Donald Trump's campaign in, in various different facets and then were nominated by him to serve on the Federal Election Commission. And um, why don't you give just kind of viewers a little bit of, or you know, our viewers and listeners just a little bit of that background. Sure. So uh, I worked in the Texas legislature in and around the Texas Capitol for about uh, 12 years. Mm -hmm. I did uh, 10 years as a staffer in the legislature. I did a year as general counsel to the secretary of state's office uh, when Roger Williams was the secretary of state. Mm -hmm. Uh, After that, I went out on my own practicing law for a little while, my own private law firm. And then I joined a bigger law firm out of Houston. Uh, which was ultimately acquired by a, a national law firm. So I've been a partner at a uh, uh, law firm with, you know, 700, 800 different lawyers mm-hmm. all over the country. Um, in 2016, I did work on the uh, Trump campaign, uh, moved there after having uh, been a volunteer on the Cruz campaign. And uh, when we got back from Indiana after the primary and, and Cruz had conceded the primary at that point, mm-hmm. Uh, got a call from a good friend of mine who was a lawyer with the Trump campaign and mm-hmm. asked if I wanted to help out there. So I went to uh, uh, to uh, the the national convention and served as uh, legal counsel to the platform committee yeah. uh, for the Trump campaign. And then in 2017, when President Trump uh, took office, I spent three months working in the Pentagon to help vet uh, political appointees who were coming into uh, the Pentagon. So I worked with uh, General Mattis over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in September of 2017, the president nominated me to the Federal Election Commission. And then after about a three-year delay, uh, mm-hmm. because of holdups in the Senate, uh, for various reasons, I was uh, confirmed uh, late last year or mid last year uh, to the Federal Election Commission. Uh, I chaired the Federal Election Commission when I got there. Uh, for six months, and the chairmanship rotates between the Republicans and the Democrats. Mm-hmm. So uh, now we have a, a Democrat chair for the 2000 uh, uh, for the 2021 year, and in 2022 it'll rotate back to the Republicans. So uh, give the elevator pitch of what the FEC does. What if, if somebody's out there they probably don't know what your sure. responsibilities so, are? So the Federal Election Commission is responsible for the uh, campaign finance of all of federal elected offices. Uh, so members of the House, representatives, the United States Senate, and all the presidential campaigns, uh, the super PACs, the nonprofit organizations that are involved in political campaigns. Uh, we also manage the uh, presidential election fund, 
which mm -hmm. is uh, the fund that uh, people have on their uh, income tax. If you check to give a dollar to the presidential election mm -hmm. fund, uh, we end up managing that fund as well. So uh, deeply involved in everything that goes on political. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, uh, we are in the business of regulating First Amendment activity. Mm -hmm. um, and what people can and can't do with uh, with funds and what they can and can't say uh, in political activity. So uh, other question real quick is, is what got you involved in politics in the first place? I mean, uh, what, did you know when you were in law school that was something you wanted to do? Actually, I went to law school after I was involved in politics. I've mm -hmm. always uh, I've always been inclined you know, from, from an early age to be involved in politics. Uh, doing things at the high school level. I think I had the, the what really piqued my interest was my senior year in high school. I participated in a program called the Presidential Classroom for Young Americans hmm. uh, and ended up going to Washington, D.C. with kids from all over the country. Uh, we ended up you know, debating various issues. And um, much like uh, a lot of student organizations, I found out at that point that I was a, a small minority because I was conservative in a group mm -hmm. of mostly liberals and uh, actually just got a real fire for wanting to, to I guess, rage against the machine mm. and uh, uh, advance conservative politics, uh, even at an early age. So had the ability to get involved in some uh, state rep campaigns and local campaigns and ultimately ended up coming to Austin. So Citizens United, when it was ruled upon by the Supreme Court, basically ruled that uh, expenditures, money spent, is also considered free speech in some form, right? Uh, and I'm not an expert on that, but I'm saying that the ruling gave people the ability, you can't completely limit, which has opened up this kind of super PAC world where people can put unlimited amounts of their own money into an entity that is going to have speech, right? Yeah, um, so... Uh, the, the concept of, of money equating to speech actually goes back to uh, an earlier ruling of the Supreme Court in the 1970s, uh, okay. uh, Buckley v. Vallejo, um, which equated money with speech and limited how much could be regulated. Mm -hmm. uh, but it did uphold that there could be limits on what individual contributions could go to federal candidates. Yep. The Citizens United case uh, said that corporations have to be treated the same as individuals. Hmm. Um, but when you're no longer giving directly to a candidate, you remove the reason that the government has to regulate your speech, i.e. regulate the amount of money that you can give, mm -hmm. uh, because the, the reason for limiting the amount of money to uh, candidates is to avoid corruption of the candidate themselves with mm -hmm. the money. Once you're only giving to a group, a, a political action committee or a nonprofit group or something like that, you no longer have the ability to corrupt anyone. And so there can be no limits on the amount of speech or the amount of money that an individual gives to, to those type of organizations. So that was really the holding in Citizens United. The other key holding in Citizens United was that, um, you know, whatever freedom of the press exists, only exists because the freedom of the individual to speak. You know, that is, mm. that the press has no greater right to speak than an individual does. So, you know, we hear all of these uh, push lately for uh, freedom of the press as a reason why certain people get to do uh, certain activities or bar people from certain activities, yeah. but they have to remember that particular holding in Citizens United is very critical. I know you and I have seen this a lot, but it's, it's always interesting to me because the reality is the more you limit donations to politicians, the more you help the incumbents, right? It's really well, kind of, it ends, acts as a incumbent protection plan, which actually protects the corrupt in general, because the, the truth is, 
how many Tom, Dick and Harry's know a hundred people who can give them $2,900? You know, most people don't have that in their cell phone, so they can't run for Congress. And then the people that can are the ones that are acceptable to all of the individuals who are getting something from the government and they all bundle $2,900 now. It used to be 26, then 28, now 29. And so conservatives then have to organize a bunch of donors and say, hey, we're going to give you a list of names of people you don't even know, but you got to give them money because otherwise they've got no chance um, against these other people. You know, there, there are 11 states in the country that have at the local political level, so state rep, state senator, uh, and below that have no limits on what they can give to political candidates. Uh, and we don't, there's no correlation between the level of corruption that you see in those states versus mm-hmm. what you would see in other states. Uh, and in fact, I would say that it's probably just the opposite. You see, actually see more turnover in those 11 states um, of the individuals who are representing people. Uh, than you do in the states that have those limits. And in fact, you look at states that do have limits uh, and you have higher levels of corruption uh, because of, of just what you said, you know, yep. the, the, the power tends to, to consolidate in one particular place and, and the money corrupts uh, absolutely. Mm. So uh, I brought you on to talk about Texas redistricting, and we'll get back to a couple other things here. Um, but you've had some interesting commentary that you've put out there. I think for Texans, you know, some people don't know that we we have a census every two years, and then that causes initiates a redistricting process, right? Sure. So we conduct the census that changes the population makeup, and then the legislature has to come in every five sessions and redraw the maps, the Texas legislative representatives, senatorial maps, congressional maps, state board of education. And these maps um, affect who gets to be in power. They affect um, the amount of Republican, Democrat, and swing districts that exist in every single form of the legislature. And it's also a way that we've seen in the past that leadership has used to kind of uh, punish conservative Republicans who aren't towing the line and different stuff. You've, you and I have witnessed that in past um, redistricting sessions. But you made some interesting commentary about Uh, people needing to be ready for potentially the legislative redistricting board to actually redistrict. And, um, and I know that's not a guarantee thing to happen, but truthfully, a lot of people don't know how this process works. So the census has been delayed. Normally we would already have our census data. People would already be drawing these maps, but COVID has delayed that process. And so we're not going to get that data till later in the process, meaning we won't be able to draw the maps up during this session, which ends in May. So all that table being set, why don't you tell us how you see redistricting going on? And also, what, what is the Legislative Redistricting Board? How does that work? Uh, what would cause a situation where they would be drawing the legislative maps uh, instead of the legislature themselves? Sure. Well, I want to start at the beginning with the census. Uh, so every 10 years, the U.S. Constitution requires that a census be done. <clears throat> and so uh, most people probably participated uh, in the 2020 census via an online survey that they got from the census. Some people may have gotten in the mail. Some people may have had someone knock yep. on their door, yep. just depending on how they uh, answer the particular census questions, basically for the number of people that live in your house and um, some, some other data that they collected. Uh, the big holdup in the census this year was the bureaucrats in, in Washington, D.C., who fought against the Trump administration, mm-hmm. including uh, citizenship data uh, in the census. And it's only been uh, this past census and the one before done under the Obama administration uh, where, census, where citizenship data was not collected uh, mm-hmm. during uh, the census. 
Um, and interestingly enough, to do re the redistricting process properly, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, in an opinion that Justice Kennedy wrote, uh, said that you're required to have citizenship data when mm -hmm. you look at uh, numbers that you're drawing. So it's interesting that we that we don't have that number um, for the past two cycles to actually look at and draw. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, because, because of uh, COVID and some other things, we have a delay in the census. The biggest thing that's holding up the census having been completed and apportionment numbers being given to Congress is the institutional populations at our at uh, at colleges and universities? Hmm. Uh, normally, colleges and universities will uh, fill out a census form for students mm -hmm. who are living on campus. Yep. Uh, but because those students weren't on campus, there was different directions given from the Census Bureau as to what to do. Some huh. colleges and universities said, "Well, we have a hundred dorm rooms. Normally, there would be two hundred people in those dorm rooms. Therefore, we have two hundred people to count in the census." Hmm. When really there weren't two hundred people on on campus at that point, uh, so you have a number there that's conflated. Uh, then those same people could have been counted back home because you know they're back with mom and dad waiting to go back to school or doing it online, and mom and dad fill out the census and you've got all of those individuals being counted at home. So we got this duplication of the inclusion of students. Uh, then we have institutions that didn't include anybody uh, on theirs, uh, but the state may have sent out directions that said, hey, the Census Bureau has told the university that your student will be counted at home. So mom and dad didn't fill out the census mm. form to include. So now you have somebody who's not included in the census. So the data is a mess. Got it. Uh, to say the least. Yep. Um, so they have not given the the numbers to Congress to apportion the data. But ultimately, what will happen is is those numbers will get uh, clarified. Now, there's a lot of litigation going on with that right now mm -hmm. uh, because that number is the borderline between one state losing a seat and another state gaining a seat. Uh, Texas is really not involved in that. We know for a fact that Texas is going to gain three seats. Yep. We're not we're not on the bubble to gain or lose a seat, so it's not of a particular interest um, to us. But it is to other states, and so mm. uh, so they'll continue yep. to litigate that. And until that litigation is finished, there won't be an ability to give Congress apportionment data. But once the total population number is uh, concluded, uh, that number will be given to Congress. Uh, and it'll be divided by 435 and allocated to the particular states uh, based upon their population. Hmm. Uh, we anticipate uh, the earliest that the Census Bureau anticipates having that information available for Congress would be in uh, uh, April. Okay. Um, so think about the Texas legislature, yep. where we would be at in the legislative process. Yep. It'll be April, May. I mean, we're towards the end of the 140 day mm -hmm. legislative process. Yep. Now, in order to redistrict, there's an additional data that's needed, and it's called the PL94, Public Law 94 uh, data. And what that tells you is how many people live in each particular, what's known as a census block uh, on the ground. So think about the ground being divided up into, to yep. the entire United States being divided up into a grid with a certain number of people in each grid. That's what you need in order to redistrict. Yep. Because for congressional districts, you can have no deviation in the population. There has to be exactly the same number of people in every congressional district. <laughs> now, that PL94 data is at the earliest going to be available at the end of June. So mm -hmm. I anticipate that the legislature will be gone by the end of June. Uh, so the Texas Constitution 
requires that the legislature redraw the state legislative and state senate districts in the first regular session after the census has been taken. Now, of course, the census was taken in 2020, so this 2021 mm -hmm. would be the first regular session. Uh, so that's their opportunity to redraw their districts. If the legislature, for whatever reason, fails to redraw their districts, and in this case, they'll fail to redraw basically because of an absence of the data to redraw, mm -hmm. uh, that invokes the uh, within 60 days after the end of that legislative session, uh, the Legislative Redistricting Board under the Constitution uh, receives jurisdiction to draw the district. Legislative Redistricting Board is made up of the Lieutenant Governor, the Speaker of the House, the Attorney General, the Comptroller, and the Commissioner of the General Land Office. So those five individuals will be responsible for drawing the districts. Mm -hmm. uh, they'll draw both state house and state senate districts. And once they convene, so they have 60 days to convene, and then once they convene, they have to get their work done within 90 days. Mm -hmm. uh, so they have 90 days to sit down and go through the maps and draw the maps. So we're really in a situation where, um, you know, redistricting is normally uh, elected politicians picking who their constituents are going to be. Yeah. Uh, now you're in a position where five statewide elected officials or, or, or four statewide elected officials and the Speaker of the House uh, are going to be in the position of kind of divvying up the, the map. And you see where games can be played both in the legislative redistricting yep. process itself and with the LRB as to whether or not conservatives, liberals uh, get punished, whether they get recognized mm -hmm. as, a, as a group that needs to be uh you know different different districts drawn for those type of things but i think what you'll ultimately see from the lrb is pretty much an incumbent protection uh situation they're going to want to do as little uh change as they possibly can and protect uh incumbents in that process and i'll tell you uh, given the lateness of the data that we're getting from the census bureau um there may be a situation where the legislative redistricting board e isn't even able to do their job in which mm -hmm. case uh, all of this will fall to the courts and you can mm -hmm. end up having state courts and federal courts uh, drawing districts. And of course, as Republicans have in the past, they have uh, fought against that. So you could be in a situation where uh, the governor calls the legislature back with the uh, direction to draw state house and state mm -hmm. Senate maps. Uh, the one thing that the Legislative Redistricting Board doesn't do uh, and cannot constitutionally do, U.S. constitutionally do, is draw congressional districts. Yep. Uh, congressional districts must be drawn by the legislature under the U.S. Constitution. Uh, and so, again, you could see the governor calling uh, a special session yep. for the legislature to deal with congressional redistricting after we get that PL94 data in June. Um, and if he takes the same position uh, that Governor Perry took in the past uh, and that he took as attorney general, uh, it's not the job of federal courts or state courts to draw the maps, but it's the job of the legislature to do mm -hmm. that. Uh, and so I would anticipate that he would, in fact, call the legislature back to do congressional redistricting. Yep. And then after Congress, now the question is, can the governor call the legislature back in the fall to do legislative and congressional redistricting? That is an interesting question, and I don't think one that's been tested uh, Yep in jurisprudence because the constitution is so specific, the state constitution is so specific yep. as to when the state legislature 
must draw the districts mm -hmm. and that they lose that jurisdiction to the legislative redistricting board under uh, the provisions for, for the LRB, they lose that jurisdiction at the end of that legislative session. I think it's an open question as to whether or not they could be brought back. Now, the governor does have broad authority when calling the mm -hmm. legislature back in to set the agenda. Yes. Uh, so you, you really have two competing interests in the Constitution. Um, and it, it'll be interesting to see how that's settled. Uh, I would anticipate, uh, given the Republican makeup of the legislature, that there would be a particular legal challenge to whether or not the state legislature can come back in at the call of the governor to draw state house and state senate districts. Yep. And the one thing that gets left out of all of this is the redrawing of the state board of education. And, and in yep. a lot of ways, that's you know uh, yep. one of the most important things that needs to be done. Uh, but it's really always an afterthought. They're not included in the LRB. Uh, they're not included uh, in um, special session usually. So mm. uh, it usually takes some sort of lawsuit to, to, to have it redrawn as well. Wow. So the point is a lot is in the air. The census, uh, COVID, n refusing uh, to just verify citizenship before they count uh, individuals. And, and really, you talk about D.C. bureaucrats during the Trump administration, right? One of the things that oh, hasn't yeah. been focused on enough is just how m much you have institutional bureaucracy that will undermine any president. They don't serve at the pleasure of the president. They don't think they serve the president. They serve their own interests and they have their own agenda and they see themselves as little mini gods, uh, even though they're just federal employees there to serve either administration, right, right that they serve under. Right. So it's, uh, it's something that I think a lot of Republicans and hopefully a lot of Republicans who might be in office more and more in the future, realize is that you have got to really, I mean, personnel makes policy and you've got to clean house when you go into those oh, situations. Yeah. Um, it's really interesting. I did want to come and because I don't think anybody understands this issue as well as you do. And so the whole legislative redistricting situation uh, is fascinating. A lot of politicians aren't going to want the legislative redistricting board, even state reps and state senators who are in good, you know, communication and relationship with all the statewide members still would rather have their own input. Right. And you've been there in the oh, process. Absolutely. These guys absolutely. like being able to move things. They love being themselves. able to pick their constituents instead of their constituents. That's right. Them. That's right. <laughs> hey, I got my cousin lives there. Can we just bring right. his, you know, just, I just want a little bit of this city and you're going, okay. That's exactly um, right. And exactly it gets right. that much. I mean, people don't realize like, no, people will fight for that. You know, they, they, oh, absolutely. they think about it. I got a vacation home in that County. So That's right. uh, it is what it is. So Trey, you are one of the few people um, that have experience in both swamps, the Austin swamp and the DC swamp. So why don't you tell us from your time in each, the difference of the swamp? I kind of think like, I mean, I know the weather's a little different, right? Just fundamentally <laughs> it is. in this swamp versus that swamp. So one's drier, one's wetter, one's colder, one's hotter, but like, is, is the, is the shrubbery any different? Is the mud any different? More water content? Like, tell us the difference of the, the Texas and the Austin swamps. Well, I will tell you that the D.C. swamp is, is much worse than, than the Texas swamp. Uh, now, that's not saying a lot because the, 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 the Texas swamp is, is pretty bad. But yep. uh, I do find that bureaucrats in, in and around Austin can mm -hmm. be much more responsive to political pressure from elected mm -hmm. officials than those in D.C., uh, those in D.C., if they disagree with the administration that is in power in the White House or even in Congress, 
they see themselves and their job is really just to outlast an administration that they disagree with, mm -hmm. uh, to slow down the process as much as they possibly can as far as implementation, uh, and then you know hope that there's an administration change uh, to their liking and then they mm -hmm. can move on with uh, you know with with their particular agenda. Uh, I'll give you an example of that. Uh, is at, towards the end of the Trump administration, uh, there was uh, an executive order that was issued with regard to critical race theory hmm. uh, being taught at uh, training sessions for various uh, governmental entities. Yes, yes. And a, review, and a review process that needed to be undertaken before that happened. Um, the The process in D.C. with regard to that particular executive order was just let's push it to the side, let's slow that process down as mm. much as we possibly can because we tend to disagree with it uh, and we'll see what happens in the 2020 election as to whether or not we need to deal with it. And of course, there was a change in administration and so now it's something that they don't have to deal with, but you know, they were able to, de to delay it long enough. Um, mm. And I saw that on the front end coming, in, uh, coming into the Pentagon. Mm. Um, you know, there were those at the Pentagon who were extremely happy that President Trump was elected and, mm -hmm. and were eager to help and implement his positions with regard to national security and national defense. Uh, there were those that disagreed with it. And, you know, they slow rolled particular provisions that came over during the first two or three months of the administration uh, in hopes that, you know, they would either change or there would be new leaders who were appointed that they agreed with uh, yeah. or who could advocate their position more. So um, it's much worse in DC. Uh, and frankly, it's a, it's a growing problem uh, there. Uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I talk about a lot with people, uh, especially with COVID and, and businesses being shut down and everything mm -hmm. else, um, you know, at, at my office, the Federal Election Commission, there hadn't been one person who's missed a paycheck yet, uh, yeah. other than some concerns about a government shutdown. Yep. Um, and it's it's unfortunate that we're in that situation that we have so many small businesses being shut down because of COVID, and yet the federal government continues to grow. Uh, in fact, in the most recent budget for the federal election, well, in the most recent budget period for all government workers, uh, there was a pay raise uh, mm. that happened for uh, all of the bureaucrats. And so... Uh, you know, I think that's unfortunate in a time of COVID that you have pay raises being given to um, these people who work for government, and it's being done on the backs of people who are losing their livelihoods, mm -hmm. losing their homes, losing their businesses, um, you know, having to do so much to scrape to make ends meet. Uh, you mentioned critical race theory, which I think is is going to be an interesting conversation, uh, both now at the state level. And this is one of the areas in which the Trump administration really uh, again, took a cultural issue of, of really Marxism that's being uh, infiltrating our K through 12 system, our colleges, our universities. And we know this, right? We know that these theories are being taught and um, are being not only pushed by the New York Times, but also by, you know, your local public school and the state school, even your alma mater, Texas A&M and some of these other universities. And so I think it's going to be an interesting uh, conversation to have on whether or not Republicans at the state level actually think that critical race theory as a Marxist ideology is something 
that should be removed from the education process um, because you have an indoctrination going on um, and we can't, we can't teach our kids the basics that they need to know to succeed in life, but we do have time evidently to like shove a little bit of Marxism uh, down their throats. And so I do think there's an opportunity both in Texas and, and people don't realize this, but I'm trying to remember if it's criticalrace.org or one of the websites that actually shows the institutions that we know um, these these different ideologies are being taught. And, uh, and there's multiple universities in Texas that we've at least confirmed down to the um, different, you know, processes they have students go through or training programs they have uh, professors go through, curriculum that they teach. So I do think there's going to be an opportunity because Republicans need to realize that on a state-by-state basis, you have, you have the right to decide as a legislature whether or not critical race theory is upheld and pushed forth within the education process of students in your state. So um, I think Trump pushing that really brought it to light and again, took a cultural issue that people weren't even talking about, brought it to light. And now the question is how many, um, you know, Republican leaders around the nation are going to recognize it and then do something about it. I think that the reason we've got polling that indicates that over 50% of Republicans are interested in a third party that they would support. Rasmussen did that poll last week is because, you know, truthfully, before Donald Trump, uh, you look at the McCain, Romney, Bush, Dole, uh, you know, wing of the GOP. And we haven't really branded ourselves as people who give you an idea of what we believe and then intend to implement that from a policy perspective. So as a whole, uh, these people are uh, are all of a sudden got a taste of what it feels like to have somebody who says, here's what I want to do and here's what I'm going to do. And then I'm actually going to go do it. And uh, so now they're saying, hey, if if the GOP is not moving in that direction, then we're going the other direction. You know, we will, yeah. we'll go find somebody well, who will. You know, historically, it's very interesting what we've seen happen uh, with the Trump administration. And, and I hope it doesn't pretend uh, to have the same outcome as it has in the past. But, you know, you look at the demise of the, of the Federalist Party um, in at the beginning of our, our country. Mm. Uh, and one of the last things that the Federalist Party did before they left office was to literally stack as many judges into the courts as they possibly could. And we saw that in the Trump administration mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, he had a record number of judges appointed, uh, very conservative um, textualists who were put into office. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that that's not the last cry of the Republican Party, the last big thing that they did. But, uh, but the way we've seen the, the, the divergence within the Republican Party, mm-hmm. uh, it could be. Uh, the last time we saw this big of a, of a split between the elected officials and kind of the grassroots of the Republican Party mm-hmm. was at the end of Teddy Roosevelt's administration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he actually ended up running as a bull moose uh, mm-hmm. trying to create a third party uh, to, to, to run again and had, and had quite a bit of support yes. uh, for it. And, and frankly, there were a lot of people uh, when Woodrow Wilson was uh, reelected the second time, thought that, that, that Roosevelt might actually beat him. Uh, he passed away before then. But um, it's uh, interesting to, to see the, the history kind of repeat itself where uh, as a Republican in office who's getting things done, in Roosevelt's case, he was busting up the trusts, mm-hmm. uh, you know, had, a, had more of a progressive agenda, uh, but he was actually doing what he said he was going to do. I mean, yes. he went into office and uh, and actually uh, had a major fight against the the party machine. Yeah, uh, there, there's some very interesting uh, reading out there 
uh, about a uh, trial that took place in New York uh, where Teddy Roosevelt was accused of defamation against the Republican Party leadership for exposing uh, the backroom deals that were done in the state mm. of New York to, to get candidates elected. So, you know, he huh. was really pushing against establishment politicians. Yes. And, uh, and Donald Trump did the same thing, you know, pushing against the establishment and, and forcing things to light. And uh, I think that's uh, awakened a lot of conservatives to mm -hmm. the fact that it can be effective, that espousing a conservative agenda uh, can get you elected mm -hmm. and can and can actually be something that's accomplished uh, in D.C. Given all of the mechanisms that there are to stop things from happening in D.C., you can still have a conservative agenda pass. Well, Troy, thank you so much for giving me your time. Again, Absolutely. I think that you've got uh, more insight than uh, most Texans do on the redistricting process. And so I appreciate kind of now having that conversation. It's going to be interesting to see what the next six, seven months hold in the redistricting process. Uh, like I said, 10 years ago, we saw that leadership uh, took the th their biggest problems, which were conservatives most dedicated to advancing conservative policies. And they targeted them. They redistricted them out of their own districts. They paired them together. They did anything they could to say, let's take the few strongest, most dissenting views, which if you want to know who is threatening the Austin Swamp, look at who they targeted in redistricting. That's, who, that's how you'll know, right? This is not a, a dumb group of people. They're a sophisticated group of individuals who understand the type of individuals that threaten their power structure. And they Absolutely. will find those and then they will target them and they will punish them. And so I hope that Texans are watching that a little bit more. One of the things we enjoy is kind of helping peel back the curtain for the average Texan to see a little bit of how that works. And so I'm going to be interested to follow that for the next six and seven months. And, um, and maybe if enough eyes are on it, then less of that will happen. But uh, Trey, thank, thank you for your time. Thank you for kind of going through this. Uh, I'm sorry that you find yourself, you know, in both swamps at times. And, um, and at least I only usually encounter one swamp. I come to the other swamp just to like see the Jefferson <laughs> Memorial. Okay. So, I mean, I don't, I don't really encounter it, engage it that much. Uh, how often are you actually in DC, by the way? Is that like a... So because of COVID, we have very limited access to uh, any of yep. our buildings. Yep. Um, our particular building where our office is located is actually run by the District of Columbia uh, city government. So it's even more restricted than Got it. most federal offices. So uh, not there a lot, but... Uh, you know, we're still able to get most of the work done uh, via Zoom and, and mm -hmm. conference calls and things of that nature. So uh, the work still goes on. Um, and I'll definitely make sure that uh, we continue to do what we're supposed to do, however we have to do it, because we're yep. committed to, to serving in this position. Hey, Trey, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for joining us. It's our two-year inaugural episode. So yes, congratulations uh, on that. No better way than to uh, sit down with Mr. Trainer, the guy who kept me out of jail, and uh, get a little bit of insight into uh, the text redistricting process. So there you go. Thank you so much. God bless you, sir. Thanks so much, Luke. Thank you for listening to The Luke Messia Show. This program is brought to you by Scorecard Media. Check out texasscorecard.com to read up on all things Texas. Scorecard Media has other podcasts as well. Yeah, they're not as good as this one, but you should still check them out. 
Honestly, though, visit TexasScorecard.com to see all the content they're producing on a daily basis. If you'd like our podcast to grow, please consider subscribing to the show on whatever platform you listen on and leave a review. That helps others find the content we're producing. Thank you. God bless you and God bless Texas. Texas.